Jesus. Just help us to keep our mind on that at all times. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, thank you, Marcus. Um, and uh, guys, welcome, uh, welcome to First Baptist First Class. Um, as uh, somebody made the comment that this is a, a lot like uh, more leg room, there's, there's, uh, you got a little space, more space between you, so welcome to First Baptist First Class. And, um, and uh, so uh, guys, thank you for, uh, just from the staff, from my own perspective, I just want to say thank you for bearing with us through this crazy time. We've had to continually try to stay on our toes to game plan, and one of the things I just want to ask and the staff want to ask from you guys, please, guys, continue to be diligent in checking out our website, staying informed. Because things are changing so quickly, um, we are updating, we're changing our strategies, trying to find out what fits best, and so we, we need you to help us in that and to stay informed. Our website's a great place for that, um, and uh, Facebook and all of the social media that we post out. Um, letting you know what's going on in First Baptist. Hey, speaking of the chairs and all the, all the changes, um, before I get started, I, I just guys like to point out the elder board. And, and I, you guys don't get as much of a picture of what they do as I do, but they've doubled the amount of times that they're meeting during the, during the months. And because of everything that's going on, they're meeting each other, they're praying, they're very intentional. And I just Marcus and, and, and the guys, I just want to say thank you. And guys, could you give them maybe a round of applause for how, for how they have navigated such a complicated time? Because as we know, if you ask two people what their opinion is about how to handle this, you get five different opinions, right? And so they've navigated through some hard things. Um, also, our staff and, and the communication that they've continued to try to put. And then also, I just want to thank you guys. Thank you, congregation, for your diligence. Thank you, brothers and sisters of this church, knowing that, that it doesn't matter what happens in, in this world. We know that we are united in Christ, Amen. that we are united under the cross of Christ. And by his redemption, we're united as a faith family. And that's a big amen for me. And so I just, I'm such, I'm so blessed to be a part of this church that knows that Jesus is at the forefront of what we do. So uh, Chad asked me to come in and, and uh, give him a week off, and, and that's always a, a leap of faith when he asked me to come up. And, and I always say that it's, uh, it's my goal here today. If you leave really thankful that Chad is the full-time preacher, <laughs> then I have done my job. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to pick up um, in Hebrews 10. We're going to pick up in Hebrews 10. Um, before we do, uh, so the title of, of today's message is going to be good enough to fail. Um, we've got a lot to go through. And then the climax of today is going to be communion. Communion, when we come together and we remember Christ. But the message is going to lead up to the, the communion that we practice together. First, anybody recognize this game? This is single-handedly probably one of the biggest family argument creators in the world, isn't it? Um, and for my home, as I, in my home when I was growing up, it was like that for us. We loved to play Monopoly, but by the end, we were about ready to kill each other. And so uh, we'd, we'd play this game, but there was always one person that we'd play the game with, and this was my sister. And when we played the game of Monopoly, somehow she always managed to create her own rules to add her own rules so that she could win the game. And we would always end and we're like, why does, why does my sister always have all the money? And, and, 
we, even to this day, give her a hard time because she would invent her own rules or, or elaborate on a rule or add a little piece to the end of that rule. And uh, in fact, here's a little picture of me after playing Monopoly with my family as a kid. Um, but in all seriousness, all of us really do that, don't we? We like to twist the rules and justify, and we like to define life in a way that would justify our winning and our success and how we want to do life. Many of us try to do that, don't we? And then we wonder why we get so frustrated with one another, because we spend so much time trying to twist the rules and twist life and twist how to define justice and how to define goodness to our own liking, don't we? And that causes a lot of disunity, doesn't it? And that's what we have today. So let's look at the passage here, Hebrews 10. We're going to go through verses 1 through 18. So in keeping with our tradition, would you guys stand as we read God's word? Hebrews 10, 1 through 18 says this, Since the law has only a shadow of good of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifice, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he has come into the world, he said, you did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offering and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. And verse 8, after he says above, you did not want or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Everybody say amen to that. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, but this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He adds, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Everybody say amen. amen. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Would you be seated? Lord Jesus, we just pray that as we look through this passage, 
that you, Holy Spirit, would do the teaching from the inside out. You would speak to us where we're at. Would you, would you challenge us where do we need to be challenged? Would you give us the truths that we need to have? And uh, God, would you help us to see and adore you with everything we have and are? In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So uh, today we want to ask, what's the reason? So um, what's the reason? We're going to go through the three reasons for the law, three reasons for the Old Testament. There's over 600 and some rules and laws in the Old Testament. Chad's been going through those in Hebrews, just kind of revisiting what's the, what's the purpose, what's the reason for the law. Now, I know many of you probably uh, don't practice all of the law or don't practice uh, like avoiding bacon. You don't look um, to fulfill those laws. And, and we're going to kind of unpack how does that apply to us today. But we want to ask, what's the reason? Why does, why does the Old Testament spend so much time on unpacking the Levitical laws. Why is that important to us today? Why is it important for us to understand what the reason is that God spent so much of human history and Israel history and to illustrate these laws? And so what's the reason for the rules? What's the reason for the rules? Um, I, I want to compare the rules or the law to what many of us would consider being a good person being a good person or doing good things, because that has really become the new law that we try to live by as Christians, isn't it? Many of us spend our Christianity, one of the biggest beliefs within Christianity and how the world views us is that our pursuit is merely to be good people. But we know there's something wrong with that statement, is it? Isn't it? Our purpose, our goal in being believers and following Christ is not just to be good people, and the same, uh, the law often was a man's way or given to, by God man's way to be made right or be made a good person before God, to be made a good person before God. So we want to look at this idea that the law, it starts there in verse 1. If you look at verse 1, it says it's a shadow. The law is a shadow. And I want to think about a shadow. It's an outline of the real thing. You can't hug a shadow. Anybody ever tried? My kids try to chase their shadows, right? You can't feel a shadow, and a shadow can't affect you. The same is true of the law. It was never the purpose of the law to save. It was never the purpose of the law to save us. And the same, is, same thing is true with being good. The reason why Jesus spends so much time in the New Testament teaching us how to do life is not so that our end goal is not to just be good people. See, the law in, in today's terms of trying to be good, I think are similar in what we do. See, applications, see, the law and the rules today equals doing good things today. A lot of us have our own understanding of what good is, don't we? Some of us define that as a, uh, you're a good person typically if you have a shirt that has buttons. <laughs> if you go to college, if you get a good job, if you pay your mortgage, if you go to work consistently, if you're a good worker, then you're probably a good person. If you pay the bills on time, if you stay married or don't have sex outside of marriage, if you have the right or the left political views, depending on what I believe and you agree with me, right, then, then all of us, uh, then we would define that person as good as if they have the same views as us, right? We all have these different understandings of good. And we use those rules of goodness and apply those to other people, don't we? 
It's similar to the law. It's similar to the law as Israel would have seen it. These laws, these rules, it would have been made right with God or made good. So I want to ask today also, what is the point of doing good things? It's the same pursuit inherent in law-keeping. Trying to be good people is the same pursuit as law-keeping. See, the goal of Christianity has never been to be a good person. It has always been to be a redeemed person. The goal of Christianity, I'll say this again because I see this as one of the biggest misunderstandings of Christianity. The goal of Christianity is not to be a good person. It's to be a redeemed person through the works of Jesus Christ. This was God's plan from the start. See, the laws and the rules of the Old Testament were means to be a good person before God. Everyone failed terribly. We know this. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Even the ones who thought they succeeded failed. And you look at Israel's history, and we see that they, they invented their own rules, too. They added rules so that they could be successful. We get the Pharisees, the, the guys who were supposed to be the most excited and ready for the coming of the Messiah were the ones who rejected him. They missed it completely. They failed. They changed nothing about their status as condemned, damned, and guilty before God. Today, if your pursuit is merely to be a good person, then you've done nothing for your eternal status before God. You still remain, if your pursuit is just goodness, you still remain condemned, damned, and guilty before God. See, today, good people and doing good things are the same way. They do good things only by their own subjective understanding of good. We call this moral relativism. Everybody does what is good or what is right in their own eyes. Does that harken back to Judges when we went through Judges? Everybody, and if you've looked at any rate, if you've looked at social media, everybody has these amazing ways of justifying everything they're doing on both sides. And everybody's so quick to justify themselves. And everybody's got all of these little Bible verses and everybody's got all of these little arguments for why they're right. Everybody's doing what is good in their own eyes. Good is most defined and enforced today by those in charge, isn't it? We, this is, again, we call this the moral majority, the successful, the influential, the famous. Isn't it funny that celebrities, we need celebrities to come and to find to us what justice is, right? And that's why you see so many commercials with these celebrities that step up and be like, I'm going to tell you how to live your life because I know how I'm a celebrity, obviously. That's not true. We, we, you know, why are celebrities the professionals? But you see, the majority, the successful, the influential, the famous, the moral majority, um, these are the people who define our culture's current understanding of good. But we as Christians, we submit to a higher power than them. We know that God is ultimately the definer of what is good. And he says, and he says about mankind's good, at best, it is filthy behind the backdrop of his perfect goodness. It is filthy behind the backdrop of his perfect goodness. So if we're here today and we have any inkling that we think we're a good person, we're not listening to the word of God. The word of God says that we are desperately wicked. We don't even know the depths of our wickedness. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that's true. We need redemption. We don't need more rules and laws to live by. 
Doing good things can never outdo our rebellious nature. This is the essence of Christianity. It's a race that we have no ability to run. It is impossible for imperfection to achieve the perfection of God. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, over and over is trying to show us the sacrifices, they don't work. The doing good things to earn God's favor, he, it doesn't work to earn God's favor. He doesn't like us more because we do good things. He doesn't like us more because we're extremely American or we do it the American way. He doesn't like us more even if, if, we, uh, if we help the old lady cross the street. We, he's not looking at us thinking, oh man, that is a really good person. It is not to get God's approval. It's like trying to clean something white with a dirty rag. Have you ever tried that? We take a dirty rag, and this is what happens at my house all the time. My kids pick up rags off the floor and try to wipe things around. What do they do? They just make the mess worse, don't we? Same thing. It's like many of us, if we just had one room where we just left it completely dirty, we just stopped going in that room. We just avoided it. Many of us do that in our walk with God, and we think that our good things, if we just don't look at that room that are good things. Surely if I have our kitchen clean, then nobody will know about my basement. So let's look at then the purposes of the law, the purposes of the, of the rules. Number one we see is to remind us, is to remind us. You look at verse three. The whole purpose of the law is to remind us of how offensive our sin is, how offensive our sin is. God's law, good things, are a lens helping us see clearer the reality of sin and the weakness of our flesh. See, when I was in third grade, I, I was able, I think maybe it was first grade. Um, my parents are here and they can keep me accountable to uh, my memories, but um, I was in a, a play in first grade. I was, the, I was the lead in the play and I was, it was Nutcracker. And I thought I gave this amazing performance. Anybody ever seen kid plays? Right, and I, th I, I left, I got off the stage, I was like, that ah, was so cool, and then the other lead, who was a female, was like, XYZ. You know what XYZ stands for? Examine your zipper, because my fly had been open the whole time. So what had been such a source of pride, look at how good I did, now became a, a total act of embarrassment. I was like, I did not see that. See, here's the thing about the sin. It shows us, it points out, like, hey, man, X, Y, S, examine your sin. Because here's the assumption. We know that we all continually sin all the time. And the more you seek God, ask some of the elders, the longer you walk with God, the more you see how wretched you are. And the more you see, examine your sin. So it reminds us of how much we fall short and how offensive our sin is. Visuals of carnage, of bloody sacrifice, death. As, as Chad's been talking about, the visuals of blood, they all symbolize there to show us and to sink it deep in Israel's mind the offense of sin and truly how heinous and how awful it is and that there is a cost to sin. A just God has a cost to sin. That sin, it, the cost is death. Sin is not just, and, and many of us try to like minimize sin today, don't we? We try to minimize. It's not that bad. Sin is just not, it's, it's not just doing bad things. We, many of us can find people who we, again, in our own defining of goodness, think that we're better than them. But see, sin is not just doing bad things, but it's not doing what you were created to do. 
and the chief end of man, God created us to worship him. And so one of the most heinous of sins is that we elevate other things beside God. That is one of the, the chiefest of sins. Well, many times it's when we worship ourselves. So if we don't see clearly our filth, then we easily think that we are good to go with God. We never go in the room that's dirty. We are prone to take sin lightly. And here's where we are as a culture, as a Christian culture. We look at our sin flippantly, and therefore we look at the cross and say, why do I need that? But God designed that Israel could not escape in the sacrificial law because he continually reminded them. That's communion for us, by the way, the continual reminder of the cost of our sin. We ought not ever take it flippantly. Purpose number two, the, rule, uh, the purpose of the rules is to reveal how incapable we are of doing good. How incapable we are of doing good. Why do good? It shows us how bad we are at doing genuine good. Anybody ever notice that uh, you might have a good motive to start something, but then um, Becky and I like to call these things called caboose motives? It's like I did a good thing, and people started to praise me for it, and I felt pretty good about that. And then that became my chief motivation. See, altruism, which says that we do things with the right motive, I think that's totally garbage if you understand mankind. There is no such thing as altruism in a human being. We don't just do right things for the right reasons. Many of us Christians, in knowing and defining our own goodness, we try to help others. And a lot of times, I don't know if you've noticed, you ever felt like your helping is hurting? Because we're not really good, even as Christians, at doing good things, are we? And then oftentimes, it's like my kids trying to clean up a mess. We're just making it messier. You ever felt like that? And this is why, again, we need the example of Christ. And this is what this passage is displaying for us. It's very easy to walk through life thinking that God approves of us when he really does not. Shows us, when, when we look at the way of God doing things, it shows us our good solutions usually just muddy the water. I think about this, I think about a toddler, my wife and I are, are fostering to adopt a little guy and he's, he's a toddler now. And the thing about toddlers is they tend to be kind of stubborn, right? You ever notice you get in that toddler stage where they think they know how to do it better than you, so they'll push you away, and, and you let them fail. They'll spill it, or they'll fall, or they'll hurt themselves, um, and then you pick them up, and then you do it, and you, and you then try to teach them, this is how you do it right. This is how it's supposed to be done. What do they learn from that? You ever ask the question, what's the purpose? What do they learn from that? The answer is that they still have a lot to learn, that they don't know at all. See, the lesson that God is trying to tenderly teach us through mankind, teach mankind since the Garden of, of Eden, that man is incapable of being God for himself. He is incapable of divining for himself good. We're incapable of that. And today is just an, an example of that. As we look around, right now is an extraordinary example. Nobody can define justice. The attempts now in our nation are just proving ridiculous and divisive on all sides. When we try to define what is good for ourselves, we miss it. So it reveals how incapable we are of defining good or doing good ourselves. Number three, 
It points to Christ. Every rule and every law, every good deed and good thing that we attempt points to Christ. All history, scripture, and this is in, in uh, verses 5 through 8. If you look there, it's talking about Christ. Uh, we'll go there. Verse 5. Uh, then I said, see, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. We see and we know that all of Scripture, all of the laws point towards Christ in all things. It's to lead us to the cross of Christ. The law showed the power of Christ. Good things display Christ to others and ourselves, so we attempt to do good things as Christians, but it's not our end all because even when we fail, do we, anybody ever fail doing good things? Yeah. Here's the cool thing. Christians in our failure of trying to do good things, can still point to Christ. Because again, it's not, it's not about us doing good things, it's about Christ and what he did for us. And so when we fail, it even points to Christ. See, I, I, here's a little exercise for you. Have you ever tried to force yourself into a position where uh, you serve like Christ? You do something like Christ that you read in scriptures. This helps deepen our experiential understanding of Christ's love for us. Um, uh, like the commissions to serve one another, all of the one another's in scripture, um, those were very challenging. How about to wash each other's feet? He said, do to others as I have done for you, done for you right? As he said that to the disciples as he, fought, he, as he washed their feet. Any of you ever washed feet? It's a humbling thing, isn't it? It's, it's a humbling experience to show us. So why do we do the good things of the service? It's to show us the humble nature of Christ and elevate what he did for us. We often ask for an obvious voice of God. How many of you wish that you could just have a booming voice of God talk to us? You ever just wish that he would just speak up in your prayer life? Um, you know, we, we had this, uh, uh, God has been giving that repeatedly using scripture, law, history to point to Christ as the answer to salvation. My daughter um, Evie, she's, we've been trying to teach her a little bit about nonverbal communication, and Becky's been working with her. My, my daughter really likes to verbally communicate, and so sometimes she gets a little overwhelming, and she'll run up to somebody and say, will you be my friend? And sometimes other kids are like, that's a little overwhelming, right? And, uh, and she took that really hard as one girl didn't answer her, and, and we're trying to, under, and then later on, she, she, she got a hug. And um, we were talking about nonverbal communication. And uh, Becky was like, yeah, see, when you get a hug, that's a nonverbal communication that they do want to be your friend. They do want to be your friend. And then later on that day, we saw a rainbow. And it was like it clicked in Evie's mind. And she looked up at Becky. And she said, look, Mommy, God's using nonverbal communication to tell us that he loves us. Nonverbal communication. See, all of the laws are nonverbal communications that God is trying to communicate. It's my son, Jesus Christ, and I do love you. You can't do this. Let me do it for you. Is nonverbal communication. See, the will of God, verses 9 through 10, the will of God is clearly to lead us to Christ. Christ is the only acceptable means to be perfected. It means we will never be God to ourselves, but because our relationship with him, he offers us grace and brings us along into his perfection. We don't become a perfect. You ever met a perfect Christian? You ever attended a perfect church? <laughs> Stop going because you're ruining it. 
right? The perfect church is ruined when people show up, right? There is no perfection. God is the only perfect, and he brings, brings us along into his perfection. Every, and it says there, then in verse 10, right, everyone always for all. This, this eliminates the, the, the race issue, the economic status, the, the um, interests, the, the, the genres, the ages that divide us. It was Christ and Christ alone, once and always for all. That is the grace of Jesus Christ. See Mark 12, 33, and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength. Um, let's see, what do we bring here? Uh, with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So here he's saying it's a shift. It's a fundamental change in how Christians view pursuing Christ and how we view pursuing God. It's no longer about checking off the boxes of trying to be a good person. With this understanding of the law and what it taught Israel today, our pursuit as Christians, changes from earning God's love to responding to it in adoration. Say that with me. Adoration. Adoration. That we do the things that we do because we adore God. So then the passage finishes, in, starting in verse 11, with five helpful facts for genuine pre Jesus pursuit. So how do we overcome trying to pursue this, this idea that we're good people and begin to pursue the idea of being a redeemed person? How do we do that? Starts in verse 11, and he talks about the exercise and futility that the priests continue day in and day out offering sacrifices, but it did nothing. See, we need to get it into our skull that trying to be good for the sake of being a good person is an exercise in futility. Day in and day out, you can try, but it does nothing for your eternity. It doesn't affect your status before God. You can, you can try to do good things for the purpose of being a good person or receiving praise, but it does nothing for your relationship with God. Because he did it, we can't. So that's, ver so that's starting in verse 12. See, he was the victor. Know that you have been made righteous by Christ and not by yourself. You don't choose to be made righteous, but, but man, God brings you alongside and shows you and, and pours out his righteousness and gives it to you by faith, on, uh, by faith in Jesus on the cross. See, there's this word sanctification is an act of forgetfulness. I want, to I want you to hone in on this for a second. Sanctification is an act of forgetfulness, that you forget yourself because you're so enthralled and adored with Christ. And so... In being so, so enthralled with Christ, you become so captivated by Christ that you forget your sin and you do everything in your power to do the things that Jesus did. I think this is the heart behind that old saying, what would Jesus do? Right? We've kind of cheapened it, but people who are so in love and enthralled with Christ, we look at him and we want to be like him because he's our idol. He's our celebrity. He's the one that we adore. He does it. We cannot. See, he sits in triumph, and all of his enemies will be made his footstool. Those who try to define good for themselves are included in the category of those who are the enemies that will be shown those will be shown that their definition of goodness is not what God's definition of goodness was. Jesus does the perfecting because only perfection can create something perfect. 
And as we look at that term sanctified, it comes up twice in verse 14 and verse 10. Sanctified, being conformed to be more like Christ. Say sanctified. Sanctified. Means being conformed to be more like Christ. You could just say be like Christ. Um, it's in the, you notice it's sanctified in some translations in the past tense, but there the word really means it's happened and it's still happening. There's so much of this in the Bible, right? You are sanctified, but you're still being made. You're still being sanctified. Um, and so it's both past, it's done, but it's continuing to happen. It's this principle of there, but still on the way, this principle in Scripture. We become like the things that we look at. I want that to sink in. We become like the things that we look at. And so sanctification is, is looking at the triumph of Christ and being transformed by it. God's definition of good starts to become our own. See, when we begin to look at Christ and we begin to take on, uh, we begin to look at him and he becomes our pursuit. See, it's no longer based on our experiences or how we were raised. Anybody of your definitions of good have been solely based on the lessons you learned from your parents. See, it becomes no longer based on our experience. It becomes based on Christ. It becomes no longer based on our own creativity. It becomes based on Christ. It's no longer about our desires or our opinions. Our opinions don't matter. Our desires don't matter. Christ is the one who defines good. And so when we look at him, he begins, we begin to let go of our desires, let go of our opinions to seek his will. Our need to justify ourselves is no longer a part of the discussion of how we define good. Having the mind of Christ is often marked, and if you spend any length of time around godly men, and I've seen our elders do this more, more than one occasion where they'll say, having the mind of Christ is often marked by assuming that you are wrong and denying yourself for the way of Christ. And I see our elders do this. This is walking in maturity. If you can say, I assume that I'm wrong, I'm going to seek Christ on this. I'm going to assume that I'm wrong, and I've got to find what Christ's way, because I assume that my flesh is at bias here. And Christians, we've got to slow down and stop speaking so much and start seeking Christ. And make sure that the words and the emphases that we are placing are Christ's emphases. Why is this important and why am I extremely passionate about it? Because this is one of the key problems that I see in our youth today. Whether intentional or unintentional, our youth think that being a Christian means that you just need to try harder to be a good person. And as I share the gospel with our youth today, that's usually the biggest hurdle that I face, our youth in this city, they need to hear the grace of God. They don't need us to police their behavior. They need us to remind them that we couldn't behave. We needed redemption. And that's what changes us. Our youth need that message louder and louder and louder that it is God's grace by which we are saved. Because they're not getting it. And they're missing salvation. And they're living lives thinking that they're Christians, but they think it's because they're pursuing the idea of a good life. And that is a tragedy. So sanctified, sanctifying. And we're transformed from the inside out. Verse 15 to 16. We are changed from the inside out. And here's where God says he's going to write the law in our hearts. 
the law in our hearts. This is, this is the idea of being convicted that, that God is guiding us. He's our coach into trying to do better. If you don't have a, a deep conviction to pursue Christ, it do, typically means uh, one of two things. If you don't have this, then there are two possibilities. You either don't have the Holy Spirit or you have gotten really good at ignoring him. And so if you don't have this deep pressing to pursue Christ, to be more like him, you either don't have the Holy Spirit or you're getting really good at ignoring him. Verse 17 through 18 then finishes with one of the greatest parts or joyous parts of our Christianity, and that's this, that we are freed to worship, that we are freed to worship. It's no longer pursuit of God through rule following. It harkens back to Jeremiah. It's a, re a repetition of Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, which talks about knowing God. And, and Chad unpacked this a little bit and has been. But when we know God intimately, we know that he's no longer a distant taskmaster. But instead, he becomes the father whom we revere, whom we love and we can't wait to be like. We each have direct connection. And again, when we know we have when we know God, when we become Christians, when we place our faith in Jesus, we have direct connection now through Jesus by the Holy Spirit to the Father. The by through to principle. See, God works law keeping and sacrifice is no longer our focus. Or good works. Law keeping and sacrifice is no longer our focus. That's not why we do what we do. Pleasing the Father whom we adore is. See, relationship is a much more powerful motivator than legislation and rules and regulation every time. God knows this about us. Parents, you know this. You can lay down rules, but if you don't have relationship with your kids, those rules aren't going to go very far, are they? But when you, out of love and out of relationship, guide your kids, that transforms them. See, that's how God deals with us. I want to finish with this uh, picture. Uh, today's Becky's birthday, and Becky's my wife, and uh, I was just thinking about this example as I end. See, the shift or the change. Can you imagine if I were to show up and I, I rang the doorbell on Becky's birthday and I had these flowers and I just kind of threw them at her and I said, hey, I heard you were supposed to get flowers for your spouse. Here you go. How many of you be like, dude, you are a moron? Right? That's not how we do it. But, man, say I uh, reverse the situation and I come up and I ring that doorbell and say, honey, I love you so much. I researched your favorite flower, which, by the way, is even hard to say. It's a, renun a renunculus. It's a renunculus. I researched your favorite flower and I couldn't wait to bring it to you. It's a get-to kind of thing instead of a have-to kind of thing. This is living as a redeemed follower instead of just being a good person. It's the difference between a get-to kind of thing and a have-to kind of thing. As Christians, we get to. We get to. We get to. It's no longer about being a good person, but it's about being a redeemed person. So what? Make sure that your pursuit is motivated by a love and an adoration of Christ alone and not by rule-keeping or being an impressive or good person. 
I want to leave you with that, and uh, we're going to go into our time of communion. And as we, as we prepare, I'll, I'll have our, our elders um, come up and, and get ready to, uh, because we're doing things a little different today as we uh, do communion, I want you to think about this, this reminder, that this is what we do to practice the reminder of our sin. It's, it's much like how God reminded Israel continually of the cost that was paid for our sin. So elders, if you'd you come up, and we're going to have you guys come up uh, a few at a time and grab both uh, the, the bread and the cup. And uh, so before we do, I'd just like to open us up in, in a word of prayer. Would you, would you close your eyes and begin to just prepare your heart to think about the weight of your sin and the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf? If you're here and you have not professed faith in Jesus Christ, I just encourage you, just, just stay where you're at. You don't have to come up. You don't have to grab the cup. I encourage you to sit and ponder how on earth you could have a relationship with a perfect God. It sounds impossible. But it was, the, it was that very thing that Jesus did for us. He brought us into a relationship with a perfect God. See, it's Jesus alone. So if you're here and you're trying to earn God's favor and do enough good and get enough straight A's or pay your mortgage or be as consistent enough, you're going to fail. What it actually requires is a bent knee before Christ. So I want to ask if you're here and you don't know Jesus, would you bend your knee and say that you need Jesus? Christian, maybe you're here and you need to bend the knee because you've been ignoring the Holy Spirit and you've been so caught up in the conversations of today that you forgot that he's your source of truth. Would you bend your knee today as you take communion? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you, God, and we need you. Not casually, not flippantly, we are in desperate need for you, Jesus, to be our Lord and our Savior. We cannot fix ourselves. We need you, Jesus. And it's with that heart, God, now that, that we go into our communion time, would you allow us to ponder for a time you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we just ask, as you feel led, would you come up and uh, grab both cups as we take communion together? Might be a little awkward. It's okay. I know it's different, but come on up. Grab your cup.
elders have asked if there's anybody who can't get up to get their cup. Um, the elders would like to bring it to you. So if, if you could, um, if you just raise your hand and the elders would like. If you couldn't get up to get your cup, we want to bring it to you. is a weighty thing. It reminds us, it reminds us of the sacrifice that Christ poured out for us. It is supposed to be the thing that grounds us and reminds us of the depth and the offense of our sin. And the blood had to be shed that a just God in order who, he may love us, but in order to be just he would have to pour out his wrath on that which is evil. And we were guilty. We're a part of that. You see, Jesus changed that for us. And it started by his broken body. He said, this is the bread broken for you. Would you take the bread now and remember our Lord? And as we think about the cup and we think about the blood, the blood represented life. And life had to be taken. When life parted from its creator, it had to be taken. And, and part of that was that Jesus stepped in the gap for us and he spilled his blood on our behalf. Would you now take your cup and it was by his blood that was shed for us means the forgiveness of sins there was no other way we thank you Jesus would you take it now Father God as we come together and as we think about what was paid for us and as we think about the weightiness and the heaviness of our sin, but then after communion, we think about how it was taken off of our shoulders and placed onto Christ and that you returned to us. You didn't return it. You gave to us your righteous crown. And that you made us all sons and daughters. And the reaction to that, Lord, is thank you. Thank you, Lord. We rejoice and we thank you, God, for your spilt blood on our behalf. We say thank you. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.